Thanks, Miguel. Thanks, Russ. Let's uh, put some of this into action. We have two cases uh, to go over, and this is an opportunity for you to ask questions as we go. I'm going to ask my panel here what they would do, and we certainly would be happy to hear if you disagree with what we do or if you have questions about why they're choosing what they would do. If I can go to the next slide, please. Okay. Uh, these are both patients of mine. Uh, they both, uh, each case has a title. This, the title of this one is Get It Right the First Time. So this is a 29-year-old gentleman from Maine who's a musician who has a new diagnosis of Crohn's disease, so he hasn't been treated yet. He has ileocolonic disease. He hasn't had any complications yet at the time of diagnosis, meaning he doesn't have any strictures. He doesn't have any uh, uh, signs of uh, perforation. He started having symptoms of intermittent diarrhea and occasional cramping a few months before the diagnosis. He wasn't really interrupted uh, for things that he had been doing. It, it bugged him a little bit, but it wasn't a huge impact on his life or his quality of life. He was able to work and, 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 and not uh, you know, miss things that were important to him. However, when he saw his primary care provider, he uh, was found to be anemic, and that's when he was referred to GI. And he looked well and healthy. This wasn't somebody coming in who looked sickly in any way. Uh, he had a little bit of mild tenderness to moderate palpation in his right lower quadrant, but otherwise he was all right. However, his labs were, were revealing. His white count was 10.5, his hemoglobin was 9.9, .9, his platelets were elevated at 476, and a CRP of 14.3. And I'll tell you that he got referred to me uh, after he saw his gastroenterologist because he was kind of upset that we were bugging him about this at all. In fact, when he came to my office, and where he lives in Maine to my office, although if you look at a map that Maine and New Hampshire, where I live, seem close together, it's one of these you can't get there from here situations, and it's about a six-hour drive for him to come. And he actually came kind of annoyed that his doctor made him come see me. And the reason that he said his doctor made him come see me is because he, quote, refused therapy. He wasn't interested in being on any drugs. He didn't understand why he needed to be on medications. In fact, he had done some research himself, and he was using medical marijuana, which is legal in Maine, and he felt fine, and he really didn't have too much of a problem. But he couldn't understand why he needed to come for a, quote, second opinion where he felt okay, and he didn't think that this is really bothering him. He thought it was more of a doctor problem than it was a patient problem. Well, you kind of threatened him. You said, get it right the first time. Was he threatened? <laughs> he might have been threatened. Or are you supposed to get it right the first time? I'm supposed to get it right the first time. So he, he had a colonoscopy. The colonoscopy, uh, when you first get in there, you know, I'm always amazed with patients with Crohn's disease. It looks completely fine until you come around a corner and you see his right colon and his ileum. And he had pretty, uh, this is squarely in the moderate to severely active disease, although again, his, his symptoms weren't quite reflecting this. He had an MRE, which confirmed active inflammation. This was done really to define the extent of disease. We're not sure exactly how far it is or if it's more proximal bowel disease. Uh, however, no strictions, uh, no, no strictures, no collections, no other complications, pretty straight up recently diagnosed Crohn's disease. So, you know, gentlemen, when we first see a patient like this, we have some questions, right? We're thinking about what are our goals of therapy. We just heard a lot about mucosal healing. Is our goal at this point to get his mucosa looking like the other side of his colon, that he's completely normal? You know, what do we think about understanding his goals of treatment? And then how do we get to these goals? And you, you see a, a figure here that uh, 
I had created that's really, if you remember back to your psychology 101 class, you'll recognize this as similar to Maslow's pyramid or Maslow's hierarchy of care. If you remember this from your psychology learning, you know, Maslow said you can't reach the top or of, of self-efficacy until you get the bottom stuff done. You have to have a, a, a safe place to live. You have to have food. You have to have supportive, loving family around you. You have to be able to feel effective at work. And then only after that can you really achieve you know, the, uh, the happiness in life that we all deserve. And I, I feel that sometimes, Miguel, we make this mistake with patients, that we just heard you know, an hour about mucosal healing Yet, you know, he doesn't know anything about mucosal healing, and he feels fine. So just tell me a little bit about how you approach a patient like this who shows up, he doesn't really get it, and he's, he's certainly not thinking, uh, put me on a drug that causes mucosal and histologic healing. Yeah, no, I think, so the, the challenge in, and I alluded to it a little bit in my talk, and, and again, I think probably many of you have seen this, unlike ulcerative colitis where it's hard to hide symptoms. So the rectum's inflamed, they have tenesmus, urgency, bleeding, they're bothered by this, they're up at night. Crohn's disease, Corey's showing a classic case of ileal and right colonic Crohn's and the guy is basically saying, leave me alone. Now, he's pretty anemic, which is concerning. So I do a couple of things. Um, one is obviously if, if the patient comes in, I say upfront as soon as they enter the room, you need a biologic no matter what. He's going to disengage. I actually like showing them the photos. So when I do a colonoscopy or if I have a CT scan, I'll actually go through that with them. I will show some of the objective information. Now, they don't know entirely what they're looking at. But if Corey, you know, when he showed the pictures, and I can say, look, this one on the left-hand side, this smooth, clean colon is normal. And then you show this inflamed area, they kind of get it. So that's the first thing. The second thing I tell them is I know you feel fine, um, but you also are pretty anemic. So for a 29-year-old guy to have a hemoglobin less than 10 is concerning. And along those lines, I tell them that this is likely going to progress that you will feel symptoms. And the time that you feel symptoms probably means it's, it's too late, the tissue's too damaged, and definitely that's going to be a point that you need surgery. And if you need surgery, it could either be more extensive, it could result in an ostomy as well. So that, that's kind of my approach. Yeah. Ross, anything you'd like to add? <coughs> well, well, what is it that he came to his doctor with? Pain, maybe diarrhea, fatigue. Uh, and, and so kind of as Miguel said, you, you find out what, what is going to drive this guy to actually do something. I mean, he, drove, he literally drove six hours to see you. Right? So, and it's going to be six hours back. Yeah. Okay. And he has to avoid moose on the way back. And what's that? He has to avoid moose on the he way back. He has to avoid meese, right? Multiple moose on the way back. And, and listen to the soundtrack that they were playing from Michelle, Miguel's um, uh, soundtrack um, from his workout. But I, so I think uh, hammering that away, just so what, is, what are his concerns? What are his, where is he not perfect? And saying this is how we're going to get there. Um, I think uh, that that's important to do. Yeah, no, that, that, that's right. And, and he, uh, you're right in the fact that he came. So he's, he's open for discussion. And what I ended up talking to him a lot about at this is what was he hoping to do in the next few years. I think I spent more about him and his future and his career than I spent talking about his Crohn's disease at first, trying to, to see where there was an opportunity to talk about how his life could be disrupted in the future, despite the fact that he felt well. But, but again, we've all seen this, is that this, there's this disconnect. You saw the CDEIS uh, versus symptom report that, uh, you know, the old study that Russ showed. 
And, you know, that's one aspect that we understand, but patients really don't understand at first this disconnect between endoscopic findings and symptoms. And there are very few diseases that we deal with as doctors where there's such a disconnect between symptoms and diseases. One are things like cancer, that you might be asymptomatic and you unfortunately have a finding. And none of our patients would turn down treatment for cancer if we told them we found an early stage cancer. So, you know, Russ, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Miguel, this conversation of you have something that's kind of early on that hasn't caused you trouble with, you know, how do you, how do you talk to them about what could happen to them without scaring them? Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I think obviously the cancer analogy, if you said that to them in the room, they're going to be scared. But I actually like, I've heard you say that before, and I, I think it, in, in a sense, are they going to die from their Crohn's disease in a short period of time? No. Is it going to progress, and is it going to be more treatable now? And, and that is where there is a similarity. So how I say this without scaring them, and I, I really like the fact that you asked them what he wants to do. So we have these patients who their lives are such that we know if they progress, they lose weight, they get a stricture, they start getting obstruction, they're going to change their lives. And it's going to be hard to recover from that without surgery. So I, I, tell, them, I tell them, look, what's, what's the worst case scenario? Um, I tell them that you might need an extensive resection at some point that would lead to a, a short gut or a shortening gut. I said, to avoid that, we can go through what the medication options are. And then I kind of gave you a prelude to how I look at the anti-TNF, the Vito, and the Ustekimumab. And I go through risk-benefit, and I talk to them about their symptoms, what I think would work most for them. So not in a scary way, not using the cancer analogy for the patient necessarily, but for what this is going to mean in terms of the impact on their lives. Yeah, no, I agree. And Russ, I'm going to come to you in a minute with uh, treatment choices here. But just sure. playing off this a, a little bit, I, you know, this issue of how far do we push it to help them understand the future of their disease. And I agree we don't want to use terms like cancer when we describe it. But I think our patients do need to have a, a healthy respect, particularly for Crohn's disease and for how devastating it could be if we let it get too far. And I, I won't say that we want to scare them, but I think we want them a little bit scared of what the future can hold so that they do engage. And it's really hard, again, particularly in our young patients who've never been sick with anything before, this concept of treating something to prevent something that could happen years from now is just a hard concept to, to grab onto. Well, you, know, you know, Corey, most Crohn's patients aren't concerned about cancer. They're concerned about surgery and ostomy, okay? This guy's going to go to surgery. Right? Look at, look at those pictures, unless he does something. And I think it's being very realistic um, to say this area, this is shot. This is going to have to come out unless we do something about it. And, and not to scare them with an ostomy, but just to say, and this has to be done the right way. You drove all the way here. This has to be done the right way because we want to, A, make, see if we can prevent it from having to come out, and B, if it does have to come out, have it come out without you requiring an ostomy bag. You say that? It's true. You're not scaring the patient. You're being, especially because you're afraid this guy who's kind of already angry that he's there isn't going to do anything. You're being realistic, and you will have his attention really fast. Yeah, one, I agree. One, one small point I want to make, and I know this is probably hard for a lot of you who are in a practice who might not have a cohort of patients where you can do this, but if you have patients who are willing to serve as either volunteers or, or at least talk to your patients on the phone, one of the most powerful things I've found, especially around ostomies, but also for patients who are very worried about their disease, is actually to talk to another patient who's already gone through it. 
because I can tell them until I'm blue in the face. I haven't been on a biologic. I have not had surgery, and I tell them that. But one of my patients gives them a call, and I try to match them. So this guy kind of sounds like he's more in rural Maine, and I try to match them a little bit based on gender, age, and some of the things they want to do. That's incredibly powerful. I realize that that's not necessarily a resource that you have at your fingertips, but this is something that definitely helps as well. Russ, let's, let's move on to the discussion with this patient. So, uh, you know, we often will talk about on panels like this really complicated patients who have failed everything and we're trying to be creative. This is bread and butter, you know, garden variety, ileal colonic Crohn's disease. He hasn't touched a medication yet. The right. whole palate is open to us. Uh-huh. You, know, keeping all th- you know, keeping all things in consideration, including what the payers might say, uh, what's your conversation here? Which, which of our list of treatments or pick something else are, are you going to talk to him about starting? Sure. Well, you know, in the good old days, uh, and up until recently, um, and even now I still see, the answer that many treating uh, physicians choose are steroids and mesalamine, um, which is probably malpractice, um, so don't go there. Uh, in reality, so you see someone with moderate to severe Crohn's disease, and he has severe Crohn's disease, while you might need steroids if, to cool things off, you really need to go directly to an effective biologic agent. Part of what um, you also need to consider is what's the story? He lives, let's say he lives in rural Maine. Is he going to have accessibility to an infusion center? This guy's been pissed off, excuse me, this guy's been angry that he's been driving all the way to see you. Is he going to want to drive and sit in an infusion chair for two hours for the infusion plus another hour to mix it and the other hour for recovery? So, you know, get, if you're getting an angry, this is, this is an angry guy, telling, giving him an option where he's going to have to drive potentially hours to get an infusion isn't going to be the right one. So um, that, that you know, may, may then direct you towards an injectable uh, agent. Uh, what, are, what are his risks? What are, what are other things? Does he have a family history of lymphoma? Does he have uh, exposure to infectious agents? And up in Maine, because it's so cold, everything dies, right? So, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. So you're not in parts of the world where hey, you hey, have... Hey, pal, Chicago doesn't have the best weather either. I, I, well, I never lived in Maine. I lived in Boston, and, and uh, Maine is, is, is pretty bad, exactly. So I think that unless things are different, you're probably thinking about an injectable agent in this case, then you'd be looking at an injectable anti-TNF or ustekinumab. You can probably get away with, with one infusion um, uh, under the ustekinumab um, and then having him um, go right. get the injections. Uh, thanks, Russ. Miguel, uh, an injectable drugs on the table here, uh, mono or combo therapy. Again, what are we, what are we, he's sitting in front of us. We have to pitch something to him that he's going to believe in and, and stick with. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you're, you're picking an injectable, so what are your options? It's going to really be serotilizumab, adalibumab, and ustekimumab. However, probably soon it's going to be vetalizumab after at least two infusions, which we think you're going to have to use two infusions or two or three and then switch over to sub-Q. So I think right now, and insurance aside, if I were to say right now injectable agent, I'd probably go ustekimumab monotherapy for this guy. So in our region, uh, it's adalimumab, uh, adalimumab, adalimumab first line. We could, we could fight it. We because can, of the insurance. We, yeah. we, we can try. Uh, I agree with you. That's a very good choice. But he chose, we together chose adalimumab. He was comfortable with that. And then uh, we talked about monocombo therapy. So let me give you, he's on adalimumab now. Are you going to do it on its own or are you going to add a drug? For me, I would use combination. Like I said, when I start uh, the, the anti-TNFs, I am using combination. So what would I use in him? 
Um, he's 29, you said. I would probably use, um, well, one, I would talk to him about what he's willing to do. So if he's already willing to do an injection, I'd probably do weekly uh, 12.5 milligrams methotrexate. So half a cc's once a week methotrexate and adalimumab. With folic acid, or have you given up on folic acid with methotrexate? Yeah, I, I still give it, but I'm not sure it's necessary. How much do you give? One milligram a day. Okay. Good. So that's what he went on. Uh, he went on adalimumab and, and methotrexate, and we got that drug started. So now's the hard part, right? It's easy enough. He's sitting in front of us. He's not angry anymore. We've, uh, he's, he's happy he made the drive. Maine is a beautiful place, by the way. You should come mm -hmm. visit. Uh, he now starts his therapy, and he says, what do, what do I need to do? What do I need to do for monitoring? Am I going to see you back in a year? You know, how, how do we go about this? Yeah, question out there. So you're saying uh, monotherapy biologic? Yeah, and why are you saying that? Oh, why methotrexate as opposed to 6-mercaptopurine or azathioprine? Why combo rather than mono? Why combo, yeah. So, so why are you saying that with adalimumab, Miguel? So, so the, yeah, yeah, no, no, so it's not, so I wouldn't use it as much for the severity disease. I would use it more for the um, antibodies, the immunogenicity. So when you look at the totality of data and loss of response with adalibumab and infliximab, uh, using monotherapy over time, about half the patients come off. Now, if you made the argument that you were going to use proactive drug monitoring, so post-induction, you get a level of adalibumab, you try to keep it close to 10, which is probably where I think we need to be with adalibumab, and he doesn't have antibodies, and you're willing to do that. I can't argue with that, and you could make that argument. I think that would be very reasonable. I would make, an, uh, I'm going to argue the other side, which is what do you have to lose by giving uh, a time period on methotrexate, whether it's six months, a year, even azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine, and I still use azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine even in young men. Uh, I, the, the downside of that is maybe they don't tolerate it and they don't feel great. But the, uh, from a significant adverse event occurring within six or 12 months on any of these drugs is, is so low. And remember the title of this case. It's get it right the first time. We know that the first biologic is, is going to be the best. And once we get them on a drug, I want to get it right. And I actually have had great success talking to patients, even this patient, who came not wanting to be on any therapy because I told him that if we want to start a drug, we want to keep him on that drug as long as possible. I explained antibodies to him. I explained the fact that in this case, it would be taking five little pills once a week for methotrexate. And it was actually a fairly easy conversation. There's no additional monitoring you need on this. Uh, he experienced no side effects. It's pretty unusual to get uh, significant nausea or, uh, uh, or fatigue on that dose of methotrexate. So my argument would be, why not try it? If he doesn't tolerate it, you can stop it. But let's give it our very best shot. You're standing up to bat. Take a full swing. Let's do the very best we can in this guy where we really have an opportunity to get him. This is exactly where we want to get our patients, is early on, before things happen, and we don't want to wait a year or a year and a half to putter along on our second or third biologic before we realize we want to optimize things. So that's, that was the reason that we went along with combination. I think there's a question over here, and then we'll come back over here. Yeah. Uh, Miguel, maybe I'll come back to you about the, uh, the dosing and then uh, 
Uh, Russ, I'm going to ask you about checking levels for therapeutic drug monitoring. Yeah, so, so I, I would give 160, 80, 40 every other week. Um, I would give methotrexate, Ari said, I would give methotrexate in combination. Um, I'll let Russ answer the, the drug levels. Citrate-free, yeah, I mean, definitely would. And it's interesting that it's probably more the pH related to the citrate. Its pH is around 5, so that's probably what people get the burning. But the citrate-free patients tolerate it well. Some like the um, actually injection, syringe injection, better than the pen, but I would definitely use citrate-free. Russ, comment on when would you check drug, would you check drug levels and when would you check drug levels here? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, you'd like to see clinically how they're doing. Uh, I think that if they're not doing well clinically uh, or they elevated, if you were checking uh, CRP or fecal cal, if that's still elevated, um, you'd probably check levels sooner rather than later. Uh, I think that if, if he's doing well, I, I don't know how often you're seeing, but let's, let's, for argument's sake, say you have a local GI who you're, um, giving recommendations to yeah. so we can actually He's be mad seen. at that guy, I remember. What's that? He's mad because he made him drive. You mad, yeah, but I'm just saying just for the scenario, because it's hard when you have someone who's six hours away, you cannot be the one managing them and putting on multiple um, agents and then just leaving them out to, to I, in the I, wind. Com I completely um, agree. You need someone to, uh, locally to be working with you, but let's presume you do. Um, so that's someone who you say, okay, well, if he's doing well, uh, maybe after three months, check levels and see where you're at. You like a level. Some people for adalimumab say five, I think that's too low. Some say seven, maybe. Ten is, ten is better than seven, that's for sure. You might not be able to get them there, but you'd have to see. I mean, the same, and as far as the methotrexate, I mean, well, you do have to monitor these patients. Um, uh, patients who, um, the, the, the maximum dose of methotrexate is 25 milligrams. We're giving half dose right now, so one thing to consider um, is if he's having trouble is actually also going up on the methotrexate, usually injectable, but... Yeah. Could be otherwise. Great, thanks, Russ. I do see you back there, but I, I know there were a couple questions over here early. Uh, yeah, right over here, sir. Yeah, we did say oral methotrexate. So uh, I'll comment from my practice. I'll see if these guys disagree. When I'm using methotrexate as monotherapy, meaning that is my treatment, typically it would be for Crohn's disease, I use it as sub-Q. I'll remind everybody that if you look at the studies, they used IM methotrexate, which is not a fun thing to do. However, there were bioequivalent studies done after those New England Journal of Medicine papers were, were published that showed that sub-Q is equivalent to IM and a heck of a lot easier to do. When we're using methotrexate as a concomitant medication to help prevent immunogenicity, we have data primarily from the rheumatologist that using 12.5 milligrams, which is five little pills, they're 2.5 each, orally once a week is, is as good as anything else to help prevent immunogenicity against the drug. Any disagreement? I totally agree. Yeah. I, the, the only reason I would still stick with the injection is if you think get it right the first time and he's okay with the injection, yeah. um, uh, just to avoid anything with bioavailability. But I completely agree with what you said. Sure. Uh, yes, sir. So the question is, would you stop the immunomodulator in 6 to 12 months? In my practice, I stop the immunomodulator in 6 to 12 months if they're in remission, doing well, and we know we've made progress. And that doesn't mean asking the patient, how are you doing? It means repeating a scope, checking drug concentrations, checking labs, really making sure we have them as close to remission, meaning as close to biologic and mucosal healing remission as we, as we can. Uh, I'll come back to another question in a minute. 
Miguel, uh, he just had a colonoscopy, you know, right before he came to see me. Uh, when are we going to tell him he needs to come back again? Because we know everybody loves to come back for colonoscopies frequently. Yeah. So, so generally, I tell them six months to a year after I start the biologic. And generally, what I end up doing in these patients is I will use CRP. If we can get calprotectin, I'll use that as well. If by six months in, the patient's CRP, calprotectin are normal, low, what it, low, and they're feeling well, he's gained weight, he has no symptoms, I'll actually extend it to nine to 12 months. I don't go beyond 12 months. Uh, if by six months I'm not sure, I tell them up front that we might do a scope at six months. One caveat, I'll make it very brief. In some patients, I think we should continue combination really long-term, maybe not this guy, but if he had lots of fistula, multiple segment Crohn's, very severe. I've had patients on infliximab and 6-MP for nearly 20 years, and they're doing exceptionally well, but they scared me so much with how they presented and the severity of their disease. That's another caveat, but I do the exact same thing you do. Yeah, I just want to make a comment about methotrexate versus thiopurines as combination therapy. Uh, the only data we actually have to support using combination therapy is with thiopurines. We're kind of making it up a little bit with methotrexate. With that said, it's, we're extrapolating this uh, from other disease states. Pediatrics has shown that it works. We have some data in inflammatory bowel disease. When it comes to safety, we talk about thiopurines all the time as being, you know, so scary and associated with lymphoma. If you go to PubMed when you get home, you know, type in methotrexate, large B-cell lymphoma, and rheumatoid arthritis, and you're going to get a, 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 a scarily a, a number of hits of cases that of, of lymphoma that occur that are called methotrexate-induced lymphomas. So we hide behind this a little bit, and we use this to make ourselves feel better and to have an easier conversation with our patients, but we still need to be respectful of the fact that long-term methotrexate use probably is associated right. with adverse events as yeah, well. Yeah, you know, I, I want to tell you guys, I use azathioprine 6-MP. The data is much, much more data azathioprine 6-MP in inflammatory bowel disease. I don't buy the idea that just because years ago they had these hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma rates, which you have not seen increase, that everyone should switch to methotrexate. If does your guy drink? American College of Rheumatology said no more than two alcohol drinks a week. So don't put someone on something they're not going to take. Oh, let's send a kid to college on methotrexate. Guess what they're not going to do? They're either not going to drink or they're not going to take the methotrexate. Hello? Oh, and it's a woman. Oh, by the way, you can't get pregnant because you have to terminate the pregnancy. You have to use two forms of birth control. How many of you have that discussion with your patients that you put on methotrexate? I do. That's why I use azathioprine and 6-MP. So don't feel you're making a mistake using azathioprine or 6-MP. Yeah. I typically do go for a 6-TG of 235 or higher. There was a study in Maria Bruce lab group uh, um, uh, that suggested maybe you just need 160 in combination therapy. I would first give the real dose, prove you got the guy better, scope him in six months. Just make a policy. I mean, I have a bunch of practices now. I go to four locations because no one likes me. I have all these different nurse practitioners. I can't make things up saying, well, maybe I'll do this. Just have a protocol. Scope them in six months. If, if their disease is gone, maybe back off on the thiopurine or methotrexate and maybe eventually stop it. But if it's not gone, don't be backing off on it. Yeah. We should get to some more questions because I know we have about 15 more minutes and we see hands going up. So.
Right. I would never do a twin brother. Yeah. So maybe just repeat it briefly. Yeah, the, the, question, the question is thinking about personalized therapy and a patient comes who really doesn't like this idea of any of these drugs and, and asks about fecal microbial transplant uh, from a twin brother who doesn't have inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, my answer at that point is I'm open to discussion uh, to hear about this. I will be completely honest and transparent that there are no data to support that that's a treatment that's effective in this, this type of disease. If we were talking about ulcerative colitis, I might talk about it a bit differently. And I would suggest that I think we'd be making a mistake using an unproven therapy when we have safe and effective therapies that can lead to mucosal healing and, and getting better. So that would, my, I would probably shift the conversation towards the risk of not doing good therapy now is a surgery within a year or two that would be almost certain unless we're able to get this under control very quickly. Yeah, and, so and, I, and again, I, so my answer to that would be I'm, I'm open to discussion. We wouldn't be able to perform it at my medical center because it's not approved by the FDA of something to do, so you would have to find another place that was able to do that, probably under a research protocol. But in New Hampshire and the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, it wouldn't be an option. So we're, we're going to go to the back, and I'll make one brief comment to that. So if it's a complementary medicine that we can get and it's safe, so for the most part, say curcumin is an example where I hear patients say, I really want to be on curcumin, but I'm willing to take the biologic or whatever it may be. That's fine. Fecal transplant is a little bit trickier because we can't always get this, and some of the other ones are as well. And we can go through a litany of these other cannabis and where do we stand on these. But let's get to the, the question yeah, at the second Let's do table. this last question and move on to the second case, and I bet the questions will play into the second case as well. Do we have time for the second case? We, we only have about 12 minutes. So. All right, we can do it quickly. Yeah, so drug, so drug level of five when we, when we check drug concentrations. I, I would increase if five is too low. I yeah. would, if it was under seven, for sure, I'd increase. If he's doing well, that's fine. If he's, still, if he's not doing well, I'd get him at least a 10. Yeah, Miguel? I don't know. So I probably, if he was five and I showed objective evidence of healing, I'd probably leave him at five and I'd leave him alone. Uh, do you want to continue questions, or do you want to go ahead? To a Maybe case? do the do it kind of targeted, and then we can end with some questions. Okay. As yeah, well. we could do. We can get you through this. It's a it's a fairly straightforward case. A little different scenario. This is a 24 year old woman diagnosed with Crohn's disease at 16. She had ileal disease that was managed initially with prednisone and five ASAs. Escalated to six mercaptopurine, uh, 1.5 milligrams per kilogram for 18 months. Wasn't improving. Started on infliximab, 5 milligrams per kilogram monotherapy at age 19 now with a good response, uh, but progressed to having intermittent obstructive episodes with a 5 centimeter ileal stricture. Uh, Miguel underwent a 10 centimeter resection with a side to side ileocolonic anastomosis at age 21. This is a very common story, right? This is exactly what, uh, what uh, Russ was talking about, about old school treatment, is step-up therapy, starting with five ASAs, progressing the thiopurings, getting onto a drug. It was probably too late to prevent this complication from coming. Uh, and, and then she actually goes off of therapy for a number of years. Again, very, very common to lose track of these patients after a surgery, and now comes back at age 24 with cramping, intermittent diarrhea, erythema nodosum on her legs, hemoglobin of 8.9, a CRP of 2.4, uh, 
Uh, her ileum on colonoscopy now had a narrowed lumen. It was one of those that you could push and just kind of a little gentle pressure just barely got through the stricture, but we actually couldn't see exactly how far it went. So she had an MRE, and now we find she has four inflamed and narrowed segments, each about six centimeters in length. So we're talking about about 30 centimeters total of, of diseased bowel with some skip lesions there. Uh, you can see this in the right lower quadrant, and we're back to the same spot as we were before with the other patient, is now what do we do? So post-op, not the way that you would have designed post-op, but you know, what drug are you going to start here? And, and I'm going to skip to one more part, is what more might you have wanted to know about her treatment previously? Yeah, so I think that the question is, was the infliximab too late and failed because the damage was too far gone, or was she a primary non-responder or secondary loss of response? So I probably would have wanted levels if you had those before, which I'm assuming you did not. Right. Um, so I think now you're going to have to use your, your kind of your best guess on what to do. I think practically speaking, um, as tar far as getting it right the second time, I don't know that I would have go back to infliximab now, not because I haven't done that before and I believe you can do that and I think it is okay to do that. It's, I'm worried about this patient. She has multiple strictures, multiple segments. This is not gonna be, if she goes to surgery, just another stricture resection. She has different areas. I, I probably, so in this case, I would go to vetalizumab or ustekimumab. I'd have a discussion with her in terms of overall um, does she want, as Russ says, does she want an injection or an infusion? Talk about safety. I think both of them are safe. Um, I said before I don't use combination therapy. This may actually be a patient I would use to mechanism of action because I'm worried about the severity of her disease. So I guess if I were to pick, I would do uh, vetalizumab and azathioprine. All right. I think a pretty good choice there. Um, I'm going I'm to look for questions again to, to talk about either this case or the last, and then we'll bring, these are going to go to Russ. Yes, sir, right here. Yeah, so the question is, her CRP was pretty low. It was a little elevated, but not off the chart. And are we dealing with... Uh, Yeah, so the, I, we're getting at is this is fibrosis that we're dealing with or active inflammation. I'll tell you that this was an inflamed stricture. You know, Russ had showed us earlier that CRP often has a disconnect and is not the best test characteristic for looking at small bowel Crohn's disease. Uh, you, but, know, you know, this patient's concerning because they have very aggressive disease. Let's presume the surgeon ran her bowel when he did her surgery just four years ago and now she has multiple areas and she has active inflammation. You saw it on the scope and you saw it on the imaging. This person is very aggressive disease, so I, they need uh, an aggressive um, approach with active medications and close monitoring to make sure she's doing well, because it's very surprising to recur so severely in four years. Yeah. And she was a non-smoker? So, and I think this is, the, the point of this is this is salvageable disease. You know, this is somebody who doesn't have a stricture that's so tight, she doesn't have any pre-stenotic dilatation, there's, there's a chance here to recover her. But it's, it's an opportunity that you ha we have to be as, as aggressive as we can in this patient. I believe your neighbor had a question over here as well. Yeah. That, yeah, that's so, why I said yes. Yeah, so if you couldn't hear that, it, the question was, why are we using a second drug with vetalizumab? Because we feel like we don't need a second drug with vetalizumab for immunogenicity. So can you comment yeah, so, there? Yeah, so to elaborate again, um, 
Exactly. The reason I'm using two drugs is because she has very aggressive disease. She's multi-segment, and I'm using it for two mechanism of actions. You know, quite honestly, and I've said this to a few people at this conference, I think we may come to a day where we're going to actually use two biologics together. And so the question is, would you use ustekimumab and vedolizumab? I'm not recommending that tonight, but there are studies that you're going to see using combination approaches like oncology does, different mechanism of action. So for this case, yes, it would be for two different mechanism of action. Gentleman in front over here. Yeah. Yeah, I was hoping somebody would ask that. So the question is, uh, she had pretty significant erythema nodosum. Are, are we sure that vedolizumab is the right drug? Uh, you chose it, Miguel. So, so the simple answer, and I, I kind of said this in my summary slide, is I think erythema nodosum goes with bowel inflammation, and if we can heal the bowel inflammation, the erythema nodosum would get better. If you told me this was pyoderma gangrenosum, which probably would be more aggressive, I'd likely either put ustekimumab or gone back to infliximab. Or, or adalimumab. She or, never, or she never had adalimumab. I mean, I think it's reasonable that adalimumab was an option um, from the start, the get-go, and, uh, you know, this is a pretty unusual case, but I think for the most of the, the standard case you guys are going to see is someone who comes back a few years after surgery and has active disease back in the ileum, mm -hmm. and in that case, you probably wouldn't need Vita right. with an immune modulator. You could use monotherapy with ustekimumab or vedolizumab. Or if you were doing a TNF, though, possibly with a combo for immunogenicity since they already run another TNF. I agree. And Corey, as you pick people, let's do short answers because yeah, I know just we have, have a, a few, lot of hands. few minutes left here. Yes, yeah, sir, back there. First case. Yeah, so the first case, how long would we continue biologics? Russ, we started that patient on adalimumab and methotrexate. I will tell you, he had a phenomenal response. Other than, uh, other than some scarring that he had, it was unbelievable it was the same patient. When it was one of those times where you want to look around the front side and make sure you have the right guy sure. because it, it, he had such a remarkable response to this now in combination therapy. Russ? Well, so extrapolating from some data, if patients are in endoscopic remission, if he's healed completely, you can probably withdraw the immune suppressant, the immune modulator, azathioprine 6MP or methotrexate. We typically do not take them off the biologic. Um, 80, 50, 60 to 80 percent of patients taken off the biologic will relapse. It's mostly from infliximab data. Great. Uh, up front here, sir. So, uh, so, Russ, so the question is, uh, while we're kind of waiting to get these drugs going, or as we get these drugs going, would you add corticosteroids? I think many of us might have budesonides, and she just has small bowel disease, has minimal um, side effects and, de and delivery uh, to the bowel. I think that's reasonable. Great. I think we have probably time for maybe one more question in the back. Speak up a little, sir. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think I'm hearing you, which is when we're using thiopurines uh, as combination therapy, do we, uh, do we have the ability to decrease the dose or should we be using full dose? Miguel? So I, that's a very good question. Generally, I have used full dose when I use it as a second mechanism of action, and I've used half dose when I've used it for immunogenicity, but there is a paucity of data in me telling you that 
except that's what I've done in my practice. Yeah, there are data from, uh, from University of Miami that I think are very nice that uh, looked at rush, the yeah. drug levels necessary, the thiopurine drug levels of 6-TG necessary to suppress antibodies. And it appears that when we're, our, our usual goal is about 230 and higher when you're using these drugs as monotherapy to keep patients in remission. So 6-MP, azathioprine monotherapy, our goal is somewhere around 230 to about 450 is the therapeutic window for 6-TG. When you're using them as combination therapy to suppress antibodies, it's quite a bit lower, probably in the low, I'm sorry, mid-100s, 130, 150, One, around I think that threshold. 160 was a cutoff. 160 was Andres the cutoff. Yarr, um, that, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the, the University of Miami. University of Miami did his IBD fellowship, unless it was 160. Great. I would just use the regular dose and then get them better, then, then you can back off. Again, don't make up all these different rules for different things. You get just keep, keep steady. All right. Well, I'm going to take the prerogative and close out this session. I want to thank everybody for sticking around. Thank you for your attention. If you do have questions, we'll stick around for a few minutes. But have a good night. Have a good meeting.